Welcome to Cooper and Company, where politics meets people. We are so excited that you have taken the time out of your busy schedule to join us. The mission of this podcast is to engage, inspire, educate, and entertain. I hope the conversations that I have with today's trailblazers in education, business, politics, international policy, and more inspire you to do more with the resources and platform that you have. Today's episode is brought to you by 1-800-Florals. Flowers are a very very thoughtful and personal way to convey your love, friendship, or support. It is an ageless expression of caring. Sending flowers online is so easy to do using the link provided in our show notes for this episode. You can also select from their year-round flower arrangements, fresh autumn favorites, cheery birthday bouquets, and thoughtful anniversary gifts. So use the link in our show notes and send flowers to that special person today. By the way, I want to say thank you to our associate producer, Cindy Lynn, for assisting me in this entire podcast production. The United States has more than 8 million confirmed coronavirus cases and more than 219,000 deaths, the most in the world, while the U.S. economy continues to stagger along with unemployment claims increasing in early October. Today, we invite Dr. Archer to talk about the important issues that impact Americans today, including COVID-19, the new ALS bill that was recently introduced to Congress, and we're going to discuss discuss the state of minority health in America. During the presidency of George Bush, Dr. Archer served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Health in the Department of Health and Human Services. He endeared himself to social conservatives by being the Bush administration's chief defender of its gag rule, prohibiting anyone who was not a physician from discussing abortion with pregnant women at family planning clinics that received federal funding. In 1997, Dr. Archer was chosen by the Texas Board of Health to be the state's commissioner of health. Now, Dr. Archer is the chief of staff for a member of the House of Appropriations Committee with a demonstrated history of working on public policy in health, nutrition, and international development. He also has a very strong community and social service experience, crisis communications and management, and public affairs and speaking experience. Let's give Dr. Archer a big welcome. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Archer. Tell us a little bit about your position as chief of staff, and can you walk our listeners through how your day usually unfolds? Well, before COVID, my life was quite different. But Bree, first I want to just tell you that I'm very honored to be on your program. I think that bringing meaningful conversations to people about things that are reasonable, practical, and matter to them is very important today. And I'm really pleased that you would invite me on. You You know, I have a long career. I practiced medicine for 10 years. I delivered babies, delivered about 3,000 babies. And I worked in about 20 countries around the world, including in West Africa and Nigeria and in Nicaragua and Bolivia 
and then lived in the uh, Central Asian republics for four years between 93 and 97. What I have learned is that in politics, as is with health, that, that there are important conversations that need to be had so that people can take information and make their lives better. So, for example, with COVID, through this process, because my boss in Congress oversees funding for the Food and Drug Administration, we were very close to the processes of providing personal protective equipment, looking at the role of vaccines and the role of medicines, looking at even the discussions around whether we'd have enough hand sanitizer or masks in the early days of this pandemic. So we have particularly focused in our office on some things related to drugs that have been already developed that we believe have a potential great positive effect on on the COVID virus. And we can talk more about that later. A day-to-day in Congress, though, is uh, many constituent requests. You know, we get probably sometimes hundreds of requests, particularly when there are questions about health care or changes in health care we can have. And trying to reach out to everybody and talk to them, we are an office that really takes it seriously that we listen to our constituents. And so I have the pleasure of talking with lots of people about healthcare related matters in our state. And then I work on the appropriations process for my boss, who is a leader in the Appropriations Committee. And and also, I do a lot of his legislative work. You talked about ALS, and we can talk more about that. But I've been working with thousands of advocates to try to build a new framework for them so that they can get faster access to medicines that might help improve their life. That was one of the first reasons you were kind enough to return my call when I reached out to your boss's office. We talked a little little bit about the ALS advancements and the bill. Um, So let's stick with COVID-19 right now. How do you think people can re-enter the workplace? How can they prepare to re-enter the workplace so that they can protect themselves against COVID-19 at work? Um, We're hearing so many different views about how to protect yourself, what's the best way to go about this. Um, But now it seems like we're at a place where, you know what, we might have to live with this for a while? Well, I think obviously we hope that we may have a vaccine, but RNA viruses are notorious for some levels of Flu virus particularly changes with regularity. COVID seems to change a little bit less regularly than the flu virus, but finding a vaccine has not been simple. I think we've learned a lot more about how we can try to reduce the transmission. And obviously, I believe that while masks aren't perfect, they do offer some benefit. We're learning more about the question of what the humidity is in outside and indoors. And when the humidity or the relative relative humidity Humidity, barometric pressure and temperature align, you can see a reduction in what's called absolute humidity. And when the absolute humidity goes low, we see spikes in the virus. So the masks have less benefit when uh, the air gets lighter and drier, particularly indoors. So uh, one of the things about going back to work is potentially asking your workplace whether they're monitoring humidity in the air because more humidity have a, a benefit in reducing the transmission of the virus. I think there are other things that need to be part of this is that human beings really do need social interaction. And so 
social distancing may be the wrong terminology. We might need to call it physical distancing because we still need to be socially connected to each other. We need to find a way in which we can also potentially do some of our work at home and some of our work in the office. We're actually doing that in our own congressional office. So we try to keep the number of people in the office to a minimum, but then we're also interacting with each other on a regular basis with our Zoom calls and and other things. I think one other thing that we've been very interested in is just finding simple treatments that might prevent the virus from causing real harm to a patient. And then uh, I would like to talk a little bit more about that in in, uh, depth once we go to the next next topic. But at the end of the day, I think your employer and, and your situation means that you need to obviously comply with all the hand washing and the and the masks, but also pay attention to the fact that in the winter, again, the, the uh, humidity goes down and that has a particular effect indoors. And you might ask your company if they would ask their, the building superintendent to look into that question of absolute humidity. Are there any medications that people should avoid taking if they have COVID-19. I think I remember reading about the impact that ibuprofen versus aspirin has on COVID-19 if you get it. I know this may have been crazy, but I know I went out and just went ahead and bought like Tylenol Mm -hmm. and did not take Motrin just in case. What kind of information do you have on that? Honestly, I don't think we have a a lot of knowledge on that. I do think that we need to understand COVID is a, a couple of diseases. It's obviously a disease that it usually infects the the nasal passage. There are about 3% of the cells in the nasal passage that are called the goblet cells, sort of sets up camp there and then it moves into the lungs. The data is not enough to really say one way or the other. Um, I also think that there's growing evidence of the value of vitamin D3 uh, 2,000 IUs. Most people, interestingly enough, even people who are outdoors ha- have a deficiency in vitamin D3. There seems to be a benefit of that. And Dr. Frieden, who used to run the Centers for Disease Control, spoke to that very early in the process. And there's there's some folks at the Centers for Disease Control who are doing some studies around that. And I would encourage people to go out and, and start taking vitamin D3. After that, I think the question then becomes, what are the things that we know about how you might manage the disease? Obviously, any underlying disease, like particularly diabetes, hypertension, any inflammation in the arteries or the uh, vascular system can have a negative effect on the outcome of COVID. I would encourage people also to think about the kind of food they eat and how important we are looking in Congress at the idea that food is medicine and good lean proteins, lots of leafy vegetables that have B vitamins and folic acid, all of that can be very helpful in terms of improving the conditions of a person related to uh, infection with COVID. We're going into flu season. Is it possible to have flu and COVID-19 at the same time? It's certainly possible to have that. There's something about this winter weather that both promotes flu and promotes um, COVID. But I, but I do think that people in general um, that are at risk, those who are older, those with underlying illnesses really need to consider the idea that they take these small steps related to nutrition and vitamins and that they, they protect themselves with masks. And I also consider minimizing their exposure to people.
have a father who's 92 and he just basically is shut down going and doing anything with anybody. And, and I, cause I worry that if he were to get the virus, that that would be the end for him. I want to ask about contact tracing. It's been used for several decades. People are just finding out about it, but it's been used for several decades by state and local health departments to slow or stop the spread of infectious diseases. If I participate in contact tracing for COVID-19 using a digital tool, is my health information secure? I think the question about contact tracing is not just whether it happens, but what are the consequences for being traced in which you are forced? And what happened in China and other countries is that people were actually locked in their homes. I don't think that we have, our civil liberties are more important to us in the United States, and we tend not to do that. At the same time, it's helpful to know who you've been exposed to and where the the diseases have come from. When we um, work closely with our state health department and one of the industries in our state that basically is in the food industry. And one of the things we did is we got the um, the food company that was producing uh, animal protein in our, in our state to test everyone. And then we worked with the health department to make sure that those who turned out positive, we were able to go and both inform them, but also to inform their families, because in many cases, these are folks that are minorities from um, abroad, international uh, workers that, um, and they have elderly folks that live with them. And we wanted to protect both the worker, the families, and particularly their el- elderly family. And it was interesting just how willing they were to to um, move the uh, positive COVID uh, patients that were had worked in the in the uh, food manufacturing situation into one home and then they move their family and their their mothers per se into another home. So they segregated each other. So in that context, contact tracing was really important to help prevent the spread of the disease. At the same time, I think Americans are not ready to have contact tracing in which their home they're locked into their homes. Can people get COVID-19 from pets or other animals? Well, there has been some hypothesis that it's possible, but I think that the likelihood of that is extremely low. I wouldn't put much emphasis on that as a problem. Um, What about um, catching COVID twice? I know that people have now started to report that people have caught COVID twice. Is, Is it more severe the second time? Um, Have you heard any or do you know about any new advancements when it comes to um, how people recover if they've caught COVID a second time? So we're hearing of some very um, rare cases in which an individual had COVID and then was re-diagnosed. But what we've also know is that apparently patients can be antibody positive and they can shed the virus for sometimes up to three months. So you do a test and then you get another test three months later and and the virus is no longer infectious, but it actually comes up positive. So people had thought, well, gosh, I had it three months ago. Now I have it again. It's, um, is it possible that I got reinfected? And I think we're still learning about how long the virus stays uh, present in the body, how long it stays as an infectious virus in the body. But I, I think that the idea that we're going to get infected twice by the exact same virus is, is probably not very common. Now, one, one caveat is that some people may have immune deficiencies or other underlying questions, and they could very well be 
individually at risk of uh, being infected twice, but I think it's going to be very unlikely for the average person. When do you think vaccines will be ready? Do you think uh, the American public is ready to trust whatever vaccine comes out first? Well, this is a really complex question. There's certainly, if we had a good vaccine that we knew was both safe and also had a, a long effect, then I think it would be uh, very constructive and very positive for this country and the world. Again, we have to see the longitudinal data to see both the safety and and whether the antibody is actually um, developing. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing such valuable information about COVID-19. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Earlier in the show, I mentioned Bill number 7071 that was recently introduced to Congress called Mm -hmm. the Accelerating Access to Clinical Therapies for the Treatment of ALS Act. Thousands of people stricken with this debilitating disease are depending upon the development and access to cutting edge clinical therapies that could possibly improve their current health condition. From what I know, the bill is in somewhat, I guess, of a holding status, but it has made its way to the House House Committee on Energy and Commerce. So I'm sure a lot of our listeners are wondering what the Committee on Energy and Commerce has to do with clinical therapies. Can you enlighten us a little bit on this committee and its role in moving this bill along? I didn't ask to be involved in amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or Lou Gehrig's disease, but my boss's uh, brother-in-law had the disease. And so in April of 2019, the congressman asked me if I could find a way to get him um, access to a promising treatment. In that journey, we learned a lot about what patients deal with and the the horrors of this terrible, terrible disease. Right there in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins, you have an incredible uh, center for ALS. and, And there are some great centers around the country at Harvard and Mass General at Mayo and and other places. What we learned as I was trying to help my uh, boss's brother-in-law was that I couldn't just help him, I had to help everybody in in this particular trial. And then what we learned is that the problem with the clinical trials is that there are tens of thousands of patients and only a thousand of them can never get into a clinical trial. And of those, half of them may receive a placebo and never get access to the drug. So what we learned is that people needed access to drugs that were in development earlier. The problem today is that the government has never created a mechanism or a pathway for that. You know, we trust in the government for health care, but, but frankly, the government sometimes is so particular that it gets in the way of patients getting something that could be very beneficial to them. So we then built this bill and we are working now with uh, many important, you know, very uh, prominent organizations. IMLS is an organization that has very deep Democrat roots and, and we've been really excited to work with them. 
And uh, we now have 192 co-sponsors for our bill, H.R. 7071, which basically provides expanded access to drugs that are in development for patients with ALS. And it also calls on the FDA to really create a more collaborative way of working internally and externally on behalf of these patients. And and then one other exciting uh, development is that because of the work we've been doing, we were able to get uh, Francis Collins, the head of uh, National Institutes of Health, to put a new fund together to rethink how we research amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Out of my uh, boss's brother-in-law's tragedy, he passed away on April the 20th of of this year, and we're making a difference, and we're we're not going to stop till we get done. That's, That's really, as you know, we've spoken before, I have a colleague, very famous Broadway singer, and she learned that she had ALS um, several months ago. This is how this bill came to my attention. I said, well, let me let me research this. Let me look into it. And so that's how I got connected with you. And I really appreciate the time that you took to call me back. You just literally broke down everything about the bill. And I really appreciate that. And it's going to make such a difference for many people, including um, Rebecca, who is such an advocate. I mean, she's really turned this into something that she can advocate for. And I want to see this Rebecca's last name? What's Rebecca's name? Rebecca Luker. Rebecca Luker. Um, Well, you know, it's so funny because two nights ago, or Monday night, we had a uh, write-a-thon and I was on a Zoom call with Rebecca Luker. That's her. Yep. Yeah, that's her. And I was I was so moved by her passion for the bill that we've worked on so hard and uh, her lovely husband, uh, Danny Burstein, who have been so big people in Broadway and the commitment of 600 people signed up for this uh, Zoom call. And uh, I, I just... I was so touched by the commitment of so many people to try to make a difference on behalf of of Rebecca Luker. I mean, the fundamental thing we have to do is to encourage the chairman of the of the Committee on Energy and Commerce to actually be willing to move this bill forward. Uh, Frank Pallone is in New Jersey. He's obviously a very <laughs> experienced uh, legislator, and we really need to encourage him to play his role in making sure this bill can move through the process and get to the floor and be voted on. What can people in general do right now that can help get this bill to the next phase of just trying to get it passed? What are the stages? What's the turnaround time? Well, it's interesting. Anyone who actually wants to make a difference Wherever you live, if you call your congressman or congresswoman and tell them to support this bill, H.R. 7071, for ACT for ALS, accelerating um, access to critical therapies for patients with ALS, just one call from to a congressman can make a difference. We can, if we can get over the hump of you know 218 members, which says that we have enough votes to pass this on the floor, that makes a big difference. So we would be incredibly grateful for anybody to reach out to their congressperson wherever they live and to call and help with this cause. So let's shift our topic to another health issue that is having a direct impact on recovering from COVID-19 and that is the overall health of minorities, specifically when it comes to obesity. 
The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, they play a major role in tracking the data on the burden of obesity and how it's related to racial and ethnic disparities to provide information that can highlight areas where state and local actions are most needed. From the statistics I found out about, 49% of non-Hispanic Blacks have the highest age-adjusted prevalence of obesity, followed by Hispanics, and then non-Hispanic Whites, and then non-Hispanic Asians. Why is there such a disparity when it comes to minority health in America? What do you think is the first thing minorities can do about it? You've asked a question that has been dear to my heart for, um, I can, almost 30 years. You know, it's, um, it's so important that people not only have both access to healthcare, but they, that they understand how they can be part of uh, creating their own best health. You know, the traumas of being left out in our um, system, in some cases, where people doubt whether they are worthy or doubt whether they belong or doubt whether they're acceptable or doubt whether they can find work is, is, can be very devastating. And it has huge health effects. What we've learned about, about health, though, is, is that, interestingly enough, Harvard did a study in which they showed that 15% of our health and longevity is in getting health care, 10% is in our genetics, 20% is in our behaviors, and 55% is in how we understand ourselves in the, in the communities where we live. Do we support each other? Do we have high levels of trust? And do we make sure that if someone is in need that we, we try to help them? So it's interesting that, for example, if you look at data in America, you, you can look at the border of uh, the state of Texas where I work, and you take the counties on the border with Mexico, they're 32 counties, and they're 90 plus percent Hispanic, and they would have the lowest access to health care, the highest rate of uninsurance, the lowest educational attainment, and yet they would be the third healthiest state in the United States, which is a big paradox. Then you contrast that with to a place like Baltimore, which Maryland has been very generous to make sure everyone has health insurance, that there is a real commitment to public health. And you in Baltimore, you have some of the best, you have one of the best hospitals and the best schools of medicine and the best schools of public health in the, in the world at Johns Hopkins. And yet Baltimore has the worst health of any city in America. So why is that? And we need to be really aggressive at looking at both the idea of access to healthcare, but how do we help communities reestablish a, a pattern or a behavior that is supporting of health? Because we're seeing with COVID this incredible tragedy in which people who may have higher rates of diabetes or hypertension are dying from COVID where other people are not. And that's just not right. So I believe that there are a lot of things that we could come together around in this regard. And we actually have another bill in Congress called the Child Act, Community Health Improvement Leadership Development Act, which allows communities to begin to work together to um, to actually, if they find a way to save a dollar, they get 70 cents of the savings in what's called a community shared savings account. What we have learned is that when we can actually invite a community fully in to participate in them helping to create their best health, that we can actually 
do a better job. My boss has sponsored this with uh, a member of Congress of the other party who comes from an inner city in Texas, and she's an incredible advocate for people's health and access to health care. This bill basically says if a community comes together and finds a way to save a dollar by improving an outcome, they get 70 cents of that savings in a community health savings account that they can then actually use for other things in their community. Maybe it's even scholarship funds for their children or maybe improving the food in their schools or maybe lighting the, um, the trails or the sidewalks so their kids can feel safe. We believe that communities are incredibly powerful and that people, even those who've struggled and suffered and, and uh, experienced great traumas that they have tremendous goodness inside of themselves. And we want to bring that opportunity to them so that when COVID happens again, communities of all color and all, all income will actually do better in, in the next process. In June 2020, Children's National Hospital created a community network to address racial health disparities for young children and their families with a $36 million investment we are now finding that there are new developments in neuroscience and genetics information that underscores the immediate need to address childhood adversities and toxic stress in relation to the overall health and well-being during childhood into adulthood life. Can you speak to us about this development and how it relates to minorities in, in particular. Well, Yuva Bronfenbrenner was at Harvard. He's one of the finest uh, developmental, uh, childhood developmental uh, experts. And he says that for a child to, to survive and thrive, it need, they need one person who loves them irrationally. And I think, you know, when you look at some communities, there are so many stresses, you know, young mothers, young mothers alone, economic de deprivation, social deprivation. In that context, children are observe a circumstance in which they may lose hope. We also know that it's not just a it's not just a mental or psychological issue, but we've measured part of the genes, which is called the telomere. The telomere is like a candle on the genetic material, and as it burns down, um, it means that the person is going to die. And these uh, adverse childhood experiences, or the ACEs that you talked about, Bree, are uh, associated with a 14% reduction in the size of the telomere. So we have a lot of work to do, but most people that that are doing things for communities are doing them with good intention, but only almost as a superficial action. What has to happen is really that we have to recruit every member of a community to participate more fully. And I believe that our Child Act, HR 660, actually sets a standard for doing that. What I'm really pleased about is that we have potentially the most liberal member of Congress and the most conservative member of Congress actually agreeing on this idea. Idea because it's really about we just need to really embrace people where they are and we need to give them the tools to make their lives better. And I think we can overcome this if we think completely in a new way. Spending money on healthcare is not going to solve that problem. I agree. And I also like the fact that you have liberals and conservatives coming together because even though uh, we're talking about minority health in general, I think it affects children of all races 
um, because children have to, you know, they're born into different situations and they have no control over that and then how they develop into adulthood. Um, so I think that's really wonderful. And I really commend you um, for, for your work that you're doing. I want all of my listeners out there to share your thoughts on how we can improve the overall health and well-being, especially in our minority communities. How can our minority communities trust the information that's out there when it comes to taking charge of our own health? And feel free to email me with your thoughts and opinions at Company at gmail.com. Thank you so much, Dr. Archer, for joining us today. How can our listeners get in touch with you? Well, they can reach me at uh, my office in uh, Congress. They can, um, they can email me at uh, ren, R-E-Y-N dot Archer, A-R-C-H-E-R at mail, M-A-I-L dot house, H-O-U-S-E dot gov, G-O-V. I have to tell you, Bree, you are remarkable and charming. And um, I I just uh, wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm blushing a little bit over here. Thank you so much. Thank you for spending so much time with us today. And I hope everyone enjoyed today's episode of Cooper and Company. More importantly, please stay healthy and safe. A huge thanks again to Dr. Archer and to our associate producer, Cindy Lynn. Remember, don't wait for change. Be the change you wish to see in the world.